Well, let's turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And here we will find the longest miracle account in the New Testament. The resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. We're going to begin with verse 28 today, but since we've been away from it for several weeks, let's summarize what we have discovered thus far. First of all, the raising of Lazarus is John's seventh and final sign prior to the resurrection, demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Secondly, the raising of Lazarus occurred near the end of Jesus' public ministry. Now, chapter 11 is obviously the central chapter in John's Gospel. But don't confuse the location of this miracle in John's Gospel with its location in Jesus' ministry. We are really very close to the end. In fact, when you open to chapter 12, we are only six days away from Jesus' death. So John 11 is a hinged chapter in the book that transitions us from Jesus' public ministry to his Passion Week in Jerusalem. In the middle of John 11, there is a singular statement that just reorients our thinking about what's still to come. It's found in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And that statement is the hinge moment when Jesus turns our attention to an astonishing new truth. Jesus himself is the resurrection of life. And that truth now connects us to our third point. Thirdly, the raising of Lazarus triggers the final conflict between Jesus and the Jews that culminates in his arrest, trial, death, and his resurrection. Jesus, of course, refused to stay dead. Now, what happened to Lazarus then is merely a prelude to a much more significant act still to come, an even greater miracle still to come. The raising of Lazarus prepares us then to enter that final week, the Passion Week, with hope. So when you put that all together, it becomes really clear that John 11 is the beginning of a whole reorientation in our thinking. A reorientation in our thinking in particular about the resurrection. Now, given that historical background, there are two theological truths that we also need to grasp if we're really going to understand the Christian doctrine of resurrection. Here they are. Number one, Jesus himself is the source of all resurrection life. And again, he made that explicit in verse 25, I am the resurrection life. So don't look anywhere else. Don't look to any other source for resurrection life. You'll not find it. Jesus is the resurrection. And that's because, as the two words, I am, imply, Jesus is Yahweh. That's God's sacred name. Jesus is Yahweh, the creator God, the covenant God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, the God who manifests himself at the burning bush. And Yahweh, Jesus, is the resurrection and the life. He is the great I am. 
And just to be certain what type of life he's talking about, Jesus adds in verse 26, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's a really important clarification. Lazarus' resurrection was temporary. We don't know how long he lived after he was resurrected, but it really is its a prelude to the great resurrection still to come. And that leads then to a second great theological truth, and that is that the resurrection is bodily. Lazarus was resurrected bodily. Jesus brought back to life not merely his soul, but his body. Now, let's follow this truth for just a moment. In verse 16, when Jesus determined to return to Bethany to raise Lazarus, Thomas resisted. Look at what he says. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Well, Thomas is obviously despondent and faithless. He doubted whether they'd come out of Bethany alive, much less Lazarus. He believed that Jesus' mission at this point is suicidal. Now, that same Thomas, doubting Thomas as we know him, turns up prominently at the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20. And the memory of Lazarus' resurrection surely had to be a factor in Thomas's own assessment of Jesus' resurrection. But Thomas refused to believe that Jesus' body came back. Even though, just maybe a couple weeks earlier, he had seen Lazarus raised bodily. And ironically, it's Thomas' story of doubt that becomes a major testimony to Jesus' bodily resurrection. Thomas doubted that Jesus could raise Lazarus. He doubted once again that Jesus himself can come back in a body. And so when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, as you recall, Thomas was not there. And he refused to believe unless he says, I can touch a body. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas demands bodily proof. He needed to see a resurrected body like that of Lazarus that he could physically embrace. And of course, what happens? Jesus shows up, and he gives Thomas the very proof that he's looking for. So, as John carefully crafts his narrative, the gloomy Thomas of John 11 becomes an all-important testimony for establishing bodily resurrection. What happened to Lazarus happened to Jesus. A body, not merely a soul, came back from the grave. And that's because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus guarantees bodily resurrection. All right? All of that, I trust, gives you some sense of the strategic importance of John chapter 11. It really is a hinge chapter in the book. And also a very important chapter for reorienting our worldviews. It's designed to show us how we're supposed to think about life 
death and the possibility of life after death. Let John 11 shape your thinking. We come now then to the story of Jesus and Mary. Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And John's gospel, unlike the synoptics, is particularly interested in Jesus' interactions with individuals. John gives us numerous glimpses into Jesus' one-on-one conversations with individuals like Thomas. Or like Nicodemus, the woman at the well, or the man born blind, or the man whom Jesus healed at Bethesda. You get a lot of these incidents of Jesus discipling individuals. Now in John 11, 17 through 27, we already overheard a conversation between Jesus and Martha. Martha hastened out of the house to find Jesus, while Mary remained at home grieving. And Jesus dealt personally with Martha concerning her misunderstanding. And our whole understanding of resurrection begins to change as we eavesdrop on that conversation with Martha. Beginning with verse 28, then, the conversation is now going to shift away from Martha to Mary. So look at the text, verse 28, and when she, that's Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Now on the surface, John 11 is all about the healing of Lazarus, but clearly there's more to it. Curiously, there's actually no record of any conversation between Jesus and Lazarus in John 11, aside from Jesus telling him to come forth, right? There's no conversation between Jesus and Lazarus. Does that surprise you? I thought it was all about Lazarus. Well, Lazarus is the recipient of the miracle, but the actual dialogue in the chapter concerns Martha and then Mary. And that's because Jesus is every bit as interested in the sisters as he is in Lazarus. In fact, if you'll just glance back at verse 27, we have a statement of Martha's belief. This is what is the end of the whole discussion with Martha. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Well, that's a great confession. It's not enough for us to merely discover what happened to Lazarus. That's good, but there's more to it. What's more important is that you, my friend, make the same confession that Martha made. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus has no sooner secured a confession from Martha than he turns his attention, not to Lazarus, but to Mary. And that's how you have to read now verses 28 through verse 37. All right, so let's read this section. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary there, I'm sorry, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I don't know how many times I have read John's gospel without noticing the curious little line at the end of verse 28. The teacher is here and is calling for you. The miracle of Lazarus' resurrection isn't merely about Lazarus. Ostensibly, again, Jesus has returned to Bethany to summon Lazarus from the grave. But Lazarus can wait. After all, he's not going anywhere. Jesus is calling for Mary. Friends, Jesus is interested in individuals, not merely the masses. And John's gospel is really clear on that point. And let's just be clear, Jesus is interested in the woman whom we might otherwise regard as unremarkable. When the story ends, it's Lazarus who has the dramatic testimony. He was one of very few people whom Jesus raised from the grave. But again, John tells us nothing about Lazarus' conversation with Jesus. We're often tempted to think that Jesus cares more about people with those dramatic testimonies. We can almost grow envious of people's dramatic conversion narratives. And I wonder if times, at times, if Christians are tempted to embellish their testimonies. Some Christians think a dramatic testimony is a kind of prerequisite for extraordinary faith. But clearly, Jesus' own interest is drawn first to the sisters and not to Lazarus, who undeniably has the more urgent physical problem. He's dead. But again, he can wait. Mary, the teacher, is calling for you. And I imagine Mary's initial reaction might have been something like, well, me? What do you mean me? Why me? Didn't he come back for Lazarus? What do you mean he's looking for me? So in verse 29, Mary hastens out of the house to find Jesus. And Jesus, in verse 30, is still taking his time. He's outside the village where he met Martha. And again, when John pays attention to those little details like Jesus' location, he does so for a reason. It really highlights the fact that he is interested in discipling Martha. And then Mary, you know, come around to Lazarus in due course. Now, Mary's departure was accompanied by several others, perhaps friends and extended family members or perhaps professional mourners. In verse 31, they assume that she was headed to the tomb, but instead she comes to Jesus. So this whole little retinue comes along with Mary to Jesus. When Mary arrives in verse 32, she falls at Jesus' feet. 
And with some exasperation, she uttered the same statement that Martha had verbalized earlier. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We'll look back at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, this certainly is a reasonable and faith-filled statement on the part of the sisters. Jesus can and did heal the sick. Certainly, he had the ability to prevent Lazarus' death. Now, it's possible that Jesus had a similar conversation with Mary as he did with Martha. It's possible that he explained to Mary that he is the resurrection of life. John doesn't tell us. Instead, the discussion is going to go in a different direction. Jesus will react not only to Mary, but to those who came along with her. And again, verse 33 tells us a group of mourners had come along with Mary. We cannot say precisely who these people are. Jewish law required that even a poor person was to hire at least two flute players and a professional whaler. Well, we know that this family was probably wealthy, so this is probably more than just three people. They could be a whole little gaggle of professional mourners, and they could be family friends, or they could be both, all right? Jesus' response to this little crowd is perplexing. Our text in verse 33 says that Jesus, look at the text, was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Friends, that is actually a very curious translation of the Greek. It sounds like Jesus is experiencing great grief in his spirit over Lazarus' death. It sounds like Jesus is sympathizing with the mourners. However, the word translated deeply moved more likely means something like outraged. It's a word that expresses anger, indignation. It can be translated to scold or to censure. It can also refer to the snorting of horses. If you grew up around horses, you know that a snorting horse communicates sheer contempt. And in fact, if you look at the footnote in your ESV, it says indignant. The word translated also greatly troubled refers to being stirred up or greatly disturbed. English translations, for whatever reason, are really shy about translating the passage literally. Commentator Beasley Murray points out that German translations get it correct. They refuse to reduce it to merely an expression of deep emotional distress, the way it often comes across in English. Or commentator and Greek scholar D.A. Carson writes, it is lexically inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like. They're saying, look, this is not a good translation. So I suggest that we go with the footnote. Let's assume that these commentators are correct. Jesus is more than just deeply moved. He is outraged. But the question then is why? Why would he be so upset? 
The problem is there is no immediate answer in the text, and that's probably why some translators attempted to just sort of soften the whole thing out, make it sound more sympathetic. We really can't say for sure, but we can maybe take a guess. Some have suggested that Jesus is really moved by the grief of Mary in the crowd, and their grief just moves him to indignation over the fallen state of the world. The world is full of sickness, of pain, of death. And Jesus just saw this constantly. None of this is the way that it's supposed to be. Adam's transgression brought such enormous consequences upon the creation. That may be. Others have suggested that Jesus' anger was directed at the unbelief that surrounded him. And I think that's maybe more likely. Perhaps the crowd was grieving like pagans who had no true hope of the resurrection. Jesus was distraught by so much poor theology expressed by the Jews' emotional reaction. I mean, it's one thing to grieve. It's another thing to grieve as if there's no hope whatsoever. There certainly is such a thing as a grief of utter despondency that has no hope of any kind of final solution. And for the believer, this kind of grief is inexcusable. Now, those are two possible solutions. Or perhaps the solution lies somewhere between the intersection of the two. I don't know. But the world is full of trouble, and people do respond irresponsibly to the trouble and pain of the world. Friends, if Martha earlier in the chapter was not thinking clearly about the resurrection, it's almost certain that the rest of the crowd is likewise not thinking correctly about the resurrection. Now, Jesus responds to this unbelief with a question in verse 34. Where have you laid him? And unlike the earlier account where Jesus pauses to discuss theology with Martha, Jesus comes rather abruptly to the tomb. And when he arrives, in verse 35, we are told Jesus wept. And of course, you all know that in our English text, this is the shortest verse in the Bible. Of course, there were no verse divisions in the original, but this is the first verse that every little kid says I got memorized, right? Jesus, Jesus wept. Look, I got one down already, right? But aside from being the shortest verse in the Bible, it's actually, I think, one of the most intriguing and we'll have to spend some time with it and its application. I actually want to spend the rest of our time together just really investigating this short little verse. Jesus wept. So let me point out, first of all, it's important to note that the verb describing Jesus' tearful response in verse 35 is different from the verb in verse 33 describing Martha or Mary's weeping and that of the Jews. Jesus' response is not analogous to theirs. Their response aroused indignation in him. But Jesus is nevertheless sorrowful over this scene. But why does Jesus weep? Well, in my estimation, it's unlikely that Jesus was actually shedding tears over Lazarus. After all, he knew Lazarus would momentarily be raised. More likely, Jesus is distraught over this whole situation of unbelief. 
It's not unusual for anger to turn to tears, for indignation to summon grief. When you get really distraught over a situation, if you translate that first verb correctly, then it follows that Jesus just moves from this kind of indignation over this whole situation to one of frustration and grief. Uh, Many of you can probably recall a situation where you just dealt with some sort of enormous frustration, and the next thing you know, it's just like you just turned to mourning. It's like, what now? Whatever the case, we do learn a great deal about Jesus' humanity through this scene. That really, I think, is so crucial to the interpretation here. This is a very human scene. In a matter of moments, Jesus' emotional response, response ranged, understand this, from anger to lament, from indignation to mourning. It's also worth noting that the Jews picked up on Jesus' emotional response. Regardless of whether they, they, they interpreted it properly, they did pick up in verse 36 on his response. They interpreted his tears as an indication that he really did love Lazarus. Well, certainly he loved Lazarus. Now, was that why he was crying? We can't say for sure. But again, the point is this. In Jesus, we have a fascinating look into the emotional life of a human being. The Jews recognize in Jesus a personal, human capacity for love when they saw his tears. So, what shall we make of all this? Well, in a word, we can say it this way. Jesus modeled for us the use of human emotion. Jesus modeled for us appropriate human emotion, a range of emotions, no less, Now, unfortunately, some Christians tend to view emotion as a kind of vice. I'm sorry, ladies, but particularly a female vice, as if, you know, women just get over it or something like that. Friends, God is an emotional being. Jesus was an emotional being. And Christians can succumb to the notion that any expression of grief is somehow sinful. And that is wrong theology. Supposedly, tears indicate a state of dissatisfaction or a lack of faith or frank disbelief. But Jesus wept. Don't succumb to a stoic, emotionless interpretation of Christianity which views all sorrow as a kind of expression of disobedience or disbelief. Not at all. In the Beatitudes, Jesus summoned us to mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus never called us to laughter as an expression of belief. Now, it's okay to laugh, right? But he doesn't say, blessed are those who laugh. There is a kind of counseling, I'm afraid, that misleads people to think that we are supposed to live perpetually way up there on this mountaintop that condemns any kind of sinful that condemns as sinful any kind of low spirits that condemns grief as an expression of sinful failure but what are you going to do with the emotional life of Jesus Christ 
Jesus perfectly modeled human emotion. And Jesus' emotions range from indignation to lamentation. So you've got to find a place in your theology for the emotional, the deep emotional life of Jesus. If Jesus expressed emotions, there must be a legitimate kind of emotional expression that is not inherently sinful. Jesus wept. Sometimes Christian counselors, in my estimation, have not fully appreciated the mysterious interrelationship between mind and body. Some have been very, very quick to dismiss afflictions like post-traumatic stress disorder, postpartum depression as fake, or even worse, as an indication of someone's sinful state. Now, I am no medical expert. Nevertheless, I suspect that there is some misunderstand that some of this misunderstanding in Christian circles is really due to a failure to understand the very delicate and complex relationship between the human mind and the brain. There is, in fact, a dynamic relationship between the mind and the brain that theologians, philosophers, psychologists, medical experts have tried to understand for centuries. And we still understand very little The human mind is mysteriously related to the human organ of the physical brain. And we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and we do not understand all there is of that relationship. We really don't. And so we've got to be very, very careful that we don't come to rush decisions about how people are affected emotionally as they live in the world and as they deal with grief and trauma. The brain, like any other organ, can be affected physically. There's really no doubt about this in my mind, right? Or my brain. It can be affected physically. And the relationship, again, between the mind and the brain, we don't fully understand. So I think we've got to be very careful. They are interrelated. Now, I'd be out of my depth really quickly if I were to try to go further with this. But certainly it must be acceptable for Christians to experience emotional lows and times of deep mental anxiety. It is okay to feel low in spirit, to feel emotionally drained, to feel genuine sorrow. It's all okay because Jesus did and he wasn't sinning. Jesus moved from indignation right, to lamentation across that range of human emotion without sin. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, what about Paul? Paul says, rejoice evermore, right? That means i got to live up there on that mountaintop and just be happy, like zippity-doo-dah, all day long, right? Well, the problem comes in when we view rejoicing as the antithesis of emotional lows. But scripturally, this is actually a false juxtaposition. Paul did attempt to rejoice evermore. And by the way, that's actually the shortest verse in the Bible in the Greek. All right? Nevertheless, I think that's the case. I forgot to look. Anyway, nevertheless, I should look at Trent back there. could probably tell me. All right? Paul did deal with emotional lows. The same guy who said rejoice evermore told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 3, 
that he came to them, listen to this, with great fear and trembling. He had earlier suffered a savage beating back in Philippi. He comes into Corinth afraid for his life. Paul, I think, could have been describing a rather severe case of PTSD. I mean, the guy's beat up all over the place. I came to you with great fear and trembling. Jesus himself is known as the man of sorrows. Hebrews 12 and verse 2 makes a very interesting statement about Jesus. Listen to these words. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Have you ever really just contemplated the utter mystery of that statement? For the joy that was set before him. He's looking down the road and there's a cross on his horizon who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What on earth was joyful about the cross? So whatever rejoice evermore means, Jesus modeled it perfectly as he faced down the cross. But we dare not think for a moment that that cross was somehow some sort of joyful experience for Jesus. We dare not think that he sort of waltzed his way right up the cross with this jocular air of triumph. Not at all. Luke twenty two forty four, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Nevertheless, Hebrews tells us that there was a kind of joy that sustained Christ through the whole experience of his cross. So friends, biblically speaking, joy is something much deeper much, much deeper than a kind of giddily rejoicing evermore as if life is just sort of trouble-free. Not at all. Biblical joy involves much more than a sort of superficial, euphoric experience. It's not humor. It's not laughter at the punchline of a good joke. Joy is actually compatible with the term blessed The term that we read in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. Joyful are those who mourn. They're not mutually exclusive. In the midst of great agony and emotional despair, Jesus knew that he was enduring, what he was doing, let me start that over. In the midst of great agony and despair, Jesus knew that what he was enduring was approved by God. That gave him a very deep sense of satisfaction. That's the kind of joy that Jesus had. Deeply satisfied to be doing the will of God. This deep sense of contentment with this whole situation that you don't like, that God has in fact ordained for you. That's the kind of biblical joy that we're talking about. Jesus was satisfied in particular because he knew that there was an outcome to all this suffering. He didn't laugh his way to the cross, but he saw his way through because he was perfectly content, satisfied with what God had ordained for him. 
And once you understand that rejoicing and joy are not necessarily the opposite of emotional lows, then I think you'll be able to make a lot better sense of the biblical data. Jesus was a man of great emotion. And friends, Jesus sanctified the use of human emotion. Likewise, the Holy Spirit himself can be grieved. And we can be certain that neither Jesus nor the Holy Spirit sin when experiencing grief. The Psalms are full of lament and sorrow. All that to say, let's not engage in an unhealthy denigration of emotion. Don't treat emotion as a kind of vice or a symptom of spiritual depression, neither in my estimation, is a viewpoint that can be sustained scripturally. Emotion is a quality of personhood that results from our being created in the image and likeness of God. God is a God of emotion. Now, friends, God is the most joyful being in the universe, and God grieves. There are times when it probably would do us some good to really cultivate our inner emotional life. In fact, I had a professor in college, a philosophy professor, and wrote a whole book on this called Mood Tides. It was somewhat autobiographical, actually, if you know the man. The Lord is with the Lord now. The man is with the Lord now. Uh, but really a very, very good treatise on this. There, there are times that he says it really, it really would do us some good to sort of you know, let ourselves go into these low moments. There, there are times when I think you, you, you don't think deeply enough about God when your emotions aren't fully engaged. God gave us these emotions, and there are times when we have these low spirits where we can really get into a contemplative mood, and I think that we can really understand God in a whole lot better way. The fact is, if you look at the history of the church, many a great theologian dealt with real emotional difficulty and trouble. And I want to conclude today by actually talking about one of the most misunderstood people in the history of the church because I think his testimony really illustrates the point. I'm speaking of the 16th century former and theologian John Calvin. And I think I shared a bit of his autobiography with you back in 2017. It's actually quite surprising to read John Calvin's autobiography, which is recorded in his commentary in the Psalms. Because what you find in Calvin very often is a man who does not say what you think he's going to say, right? People say, well, Calvin said this and Calvin said that. Well, actually, look at what he said, and he'll really surprise you. The the typical character of Calvin is that he was a kind of cold, unfeeling, academic recluse. Supposedly, he represents a kind of stoic, emotionless Christianity. One 19th century liberal describes Calvin as the great black phantom, a Galatian person, somber, unfeeling, hurried. Nothing in him speaks to the heart. That sounds like somebody who actually never read Calvin. Again, in his commentary on the Psalms, we find out a great deal about his life because he, in the preface, gives us his autobiography. And he chose the Psalms on purpose, because he found in the Psalms lament and emotion and humanity. And he actually met a very surprising person there. 
He describes himself as, quote, feeble and timorous. He says, I have called the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. There is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented. The Holy Spirit has drawn to life all the griefs, fears, doubts, and perplexities, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. We are agitated with a great variety of doubts. He proceeds to refer to a great variety of, quote, internal afflictions which troubled him during his university days. If I've seen that once, I've seen that a hundred times. Thirty years later, he wrote of his university days, I was so afraid that I wanted to die to be rid of those fears. Calvin says the biblical character that he most identified with was a man named David. He tells you, you will observe that in unfolding the internal affections, both of David and of others, I discourse upon them as matters of which I have familiar experience. Like, I get it. I get the emotional life of David. Well, would you just listen to a minute, for a minute for, to what he actually experienced in life? Calvin was one of seven children, but lost two of his brothers when he was young. His mother died when he was six. His father died when he was 21. Calvin was exiled from his home country of France while a university student and never came home. Calvin was manipulated by an evangelist named William Farrell to pastor a church in Geneva full of people who despised him. He had a whole congregation out there like, we don't even like this guy. He was actually driven out of that church in three years. In Strasbourg, he enjoyed a couple of happy years as a pastor and author. There he married a woman named Idolette de Bure, who was herself a widow. But the two of them had three children together. And all three of them, all three of them, all three of Calvin's children died in infancy. After several years in Strasbourg, Calvin was called back to Geneva under duress. Speaking of Geneva, here's what he wrote. I would rather submit to death a hundred times than to that cross in which I had to perish daily a thousand times over. I do not want to go back to Geneva. In Geneva, in Geneva, he lost his wife after nine years of marriage. His greatest opponent, and he had many, was a man named Jerome Bolsec. Bolsec wrote a scathing book on Calvin. He accused him of greed, of financial misconduct, and of immorality. All the while, Calvin suffered with severe ulcers, gout, and insomnia. And he died, get this, at age 54. And did you know that during that rather short lifetime by today's standards... Calvin wrote commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible. He also wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion, went through several editions, and it's still widely regarded as the greatest work of systematic theology during the Reformation period. 
In fact, really the greatest work of systematic theology going all the way back to the founding of the church, all the way up to the 16th century. In addition, Calvin preached every day of the week. He founded an academy. He pastored a church. And he was the chief theological advisor to the city council of Geneva. And just how insightful was John Calvin? Well, would it surprise you that Jacob Arminius, Jacob Arminius, like Calvinism, Arminianism, Jacob Arminius loved John Calvin. He said this, Next to the study of the scriptures, which I earnestly inculcate, Jacob Arminius says, I exhort my pupils to peruse Calvin's commentaries, which I extol in lofty terms, I affirm that Calvin excels beyond comparison in the interpretation of Scripture, and his commentaries ought to be more highly valued than all that is handed down to us by the library of the fathers. That's really astonishing. Now, I realize that as soon as you bring up a name like Calvin, everybody gets kind of nervous because it's like, you know, he's, he's kind of a polarizing guy. And I think that's unfortunate because a great deal of what people think about Calvin, he never said and he never did, all right? I'm really not trying to make a theological point today at all. You understand that. The point I do want to make is this. Calvin's great theological genius and insight really should be understood against the backdrop of his whole life. His was a life full of emotional turmoil and deep pain. I don't think many of us could hold up under half of what he endured. He was a man who mourned through his entire life. But the Lord used this man in a magnificent way. And I'm not just singling out John Calvin. The same could be said of John Wesley. Or Jonathan Edwards, or Augustine, or C.H. Spurgeon, or many, many, many other people. Now, friends, I've taken a little bit of time with this concept, maybe more than I needed to, maybe not enough, I don't know, all right? But I, I hope this is really just to help to us. There is a danger in viewing Christianity as emotionless. There is a danger in denigrating emotionally low spirits. There is a danger in writing off his sin, any kind of emotional discouragement. There is a danger in the kind of spiritual counseling that tells someone, well, just memorize a couple of verses and get over it already. Well, I don't think you find that in Scripture. Jesus was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. He came to acquaint himself with our grief. He wept. He came to bear our pain, our hurt, our misery, and he did all this without sin. All of that, I think, and probably much, much more, is really rooted in the Bible's shortest verse. Jesus wept. Shall we pray? Father, we're so grateful for yet another glimpse into the life of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that Jesus would be the kind of person that we could truly, truly identify with. A God and a Savior who understands us and who can truly sympathize with our humanity. And Lord, I pray that anyone here today who's just come in with a load of grief and pain and suffering, uncertainty, perplexity, Lord, that the emotional life of Christ would just provide help and strength. For anyone listening today, online or 
In the future, listening to this sermon, Lord, I pray that that person would find real hope in the emotional life of Christ. Christ understands and Christ sympathizes. And so we want to thank you once again for a wonderful, a wonderful Christ.